welcome to an impromptu Tisky Sour on Rishi Sunak's first day as Prime Minister. We'll show you his opening address to the nation and talk about his cabinet reshuffle, including the return of Suella Braverman. Yes, I am sorry to inform you she is back. Also back is Owen Jones. That's much better news. Thank you for coming back on the show, Owen. Yeah, I like the way I've been squeezed in there with Suella Braverman. <laughs> often lumped together, often the duo of British politics, I would say. Thanks for that. You're the surprise, the surprise returnee tonight. First things first, let's start with Sunak's first task today, going to meet the king. This is a notable image because it is the first time a prime minister has been wealthier than the monarch. King Charles is said to be worth £350 million. The Sunaks are worth £750 million. It's reassuring to know we're ruled over by people so in touch with the reality the rest of us live in. After meeting the king, Sunak went to his new home at Downing Street where he gave this address. Right now, our country is facing a profound economic crisis. The aftermath of COVID still lingers. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets and supply chains the world over. I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, Liz Truss. She was not wrong to want to improve growth in this country. It is a noble aim. And I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact but mistakes nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your prime minister in part to fix them. And that work begins immediately. I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. But you saw me during COVID doing everything I could to protect people and businesses with schemes like furlough. There are always limits, more so now than ever. But I promise you this, I will bring that same compassion to the challenges we face today. The government I lead will not leave the next generation, your children and grandchildren, with a debt to settle that we were too weak to pay ourselves. I will unite our country, not with words, but with action. I will work day in and day out to deliver for you. This government will have integrity, professionalism, and accountability at every level. Trust is earned, and I will earn yours. He's sounding quite magnanimous towards um, Liz Trust, but obviously trying to draw some sharp distinctions between both Trust, him, and Boris Johnson and him. Owen, were you impressed? No, I'm not impressed because I'm not a centrist commentator who often compared to Labradors because 
the, the gist of a lot of them is the grown-ups are back in the room because they're not interested in substance. They're interested in vibes, just in terms of how things seem. They're very easily pleased, like a Labrador. The substance, of course, of Rishi Sunak is that he is on the right of the Conservatives by tradition. The, the fact he's being presented as a relative moderate, I think, is disturbing in itself because he is to the right of Boris Johnson. In fact, his aides were briefing during this brief leadership campaign after the fall of Liz Truss that the problem with Boris Johnson is that he wasn't sufficiently committed to austerity, to rolling back the states, which, of course, is what makes the heart of right-wing conservatives be that little bit faster. Of course, the danger is because Liz Truss's uh, economic agenda was, frankly, so unhinged, you know, it'll be easy for... Um, I'd say the uh, the media public consent generator to to go because they'll they'll portray you know it's so, the the standards of of the last predecessor was so much on the floor then he can present himself as this competent new government that's what the Tories always do they they get rid of you know the like Theresa May keep her in place let her absorb the bullets and then get rid of her and pretend hey presto here's a brand new government of course Rishi Sunak is continuity a lot actually this government is continuity Liz Truss like Suella Braverman back at the Home Office. And what we will see with this government is A, hardcore austerity, that's back, that's what's going to happen, deep cuts, and B, a culture war. Suella Braverman being given that position, obviously as Home Secretary, Kemi Bagdanok uh, is being given equalities, they're culture warriors, they will wage a ceaseless culture war. This is a very right-wing government, more right-wing than Boris Johnson, obviously not the slash and burn, not the, sorry, the ludicrous give loads of money to the rich of Liz Truss, but still a very, very right-wing government and a very dangerous government, which is is going to unleash a lot of pain, a lot of suffering in the two years they've got to rule. And it is quite dangerous where the bar is because, I mean, he can say, you know, he can make himself seem moderate and progressive by not giving the rich massive tax cuts, which is what Liz Truss, his predecessor, did, even if he is implementing austerity. I think another comparison we might end up hearing quite a lot is when George Osborne did austerity, it was sort of 80% of the work was done by cuts to services. 20% of the work was done by increases to taxes. I'm hearing a lot that Jeremy Hunt is going to be drawing up a budget which is more 50-50. So 50% tax increases, 50% spending cuts. And I presume that will be sold as sort of, you know, this time around we genuinely are all in it together. We will talk about that in a moment. I want to show first a clip from the BBC because when it comes to really selling austerity as inevitable. The BBC were already laying the ideological groundwork even before Rishi Sunak's speech. But the government has to, the new government has to decide extremely quickly what spending cuts it's prepared to make, what constraints on the public purse it's prepared to countenance, and what tax rises might be coming. Seven weeks ago, Liz trusted at that very lectern and told us all the big tax cuts were coming. That was the Conservative plan to boost economic growth. What we're about to see in the next few days is the exact opposite. The, the economic backdrop has changed. Mr Sunak is going to have to agree to spending cuts and to tax rises. Now, Owen, I saw that clip because I saw you share it. I saw you make a very good video about this on your YouTube page. So um, thank you for not getting annoyed at us for thieving your content. But can I ask you, what about that clip um, annoyed you so much? This is the exact quote, which is the objectionable quote there. The economic backdrop has changed. No one can disagree with that. Mr. Sunak is going to have to agree to spending cuts 
anti-tax rises. So what he, what the BBC there have done is present what I'm objecting to, spending cuts, but also tax rises, as completely unavoidable. Now, there are obviously, that's a political choice. For example, a government could decide not to do cuts and instead to introduce a wealth tax. There's a, a wealth tax commission which was set up by some of the world's leading tax experts back in 2020, including people who help wealthy clients navigate around the tax loopholes. It was a very ingenious piece of work which came up with you know huge tens of billions of pounds each year if a government introduced it on um, at least joint households worth a million pounds or more. That's a choice they could make to avoid spending cuts. But, you know, you could equally, by the way, say, you know, the fact they said tax rises. I mean, you could have just no tax rises and just spending cuts. Politically very difficult, I would say, to get that one through. But it's still, the point is, what they're doing, the BBC, is presenting what is a political choice as a political inevitability. And why is that so dangerous? Well, because what they'll do is they'll make public or try and soften up public opinion to resign themselves to these cuts. Like, you might not like these cuts. That's what they'll say. But, you know, people will be angry because they've had so many years of cuts that services have already been shredded. Public opinion is not sold on austerity like they were in 2010 because the media and I'm afraid the, the Tories and I'm afraid Labour allowed them to do this. There was this myth that Labour spent too much money and that's why that's the country was in a mess. So you had public acquiescence. That isn't there in the same way this time, partly because the Tories have landed us in this mess because of their own disastrous economic policies. So what this will try and do is, is try and soften people's anger or redirect it and make people feel there isn't a choice. And that will allow austerity to get through. It's very important people kick up a fuss about this, incidentally, because people might go, well, it was only a throwaway line. Well, I mean, it was on the BBC News channel at the time when Prime Minister was becoming Prime Minister. But this just shows what they're thinking, and it will show that's what they'll keep saying. And they will they will present that as being neutral and impartial. It isn't neutral. It isn't impartial. Presenting austerity as inevitable is a violation of journalistic objectivity, and people need to complain. They'll do it over and over again otherwise. So kick up a fuss. You should, people should type in BBC complaints and make a complaint about that as many people as possible let's see they'll have to respond let's see what they respond that will be interesting because whatever they come up with they're going to have to be very careful with how they word it because if they defend what they've said then they will be again violating impartiality so they need to explain to the british people why it's impartial to say spending cuts are inevitable they can say well this government's made those decisions that's fine we know they have but not to say it's inevitable and unavoidable which is what the dc did yeah, we did a sort of similar section recently on Tisky Sale because you're focusing there on the, the balance between tax rises and spending cuts, I think, quite rightly. The other issue is how big is this black hole they keep talking about? So we interviewed the economist Joe Michel about the claim that keeps being made on the BBC that there's a £40 billion black hole in the finances that needs to be filled. What he was explaining is that that's, you know, that's not an objective fact. There isn't objectively out there this £40 billion black hole that needs to be filled. It only exists if we accept this arbitrary target, which is that debt should fall as a proportion of GDP within three years. Now, what we've seen over the past couple of weeks is if you do something like massive unfunded tax rises, you might end up with some financial problems. That's clearly what, what happened. You, you presumably have to pay some attention to so-called sound finances, even if when um, that phrase is used, people are often just using it as code for, for austerity. But the idea that you have to follow this arbitrary target of debt falling as a proportion of GDP by, by in three years' time, the economist Jeremy Schultz said that's complete nonsense. But the BBC just keep repeating it as fact. There is this £40 billion black hole that needs to be filled, and it will have to be filled by spending cuts and 
tax rises. And if that's not laying the groundwork for, for austerity, if that's not sort of ideology par excellence, I don't know what is. Let's move on to the reshuffle. These always start with sacking. So 12 people were sacked or resigned preemptively from the cabinet. They included Simon Clark, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Brandon Lewis, and the chief whip, Wendy Morton, who I think it was her or her deputy was screaming, I don't effing care anymore outside the Commons. So I'm not sure how, how well they will go down in history in terms of doing their job functionally. Um, some of the biggest jobs are staying the same, though. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, Foreign Secretary James Cleverley, and Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. They are all keeping their jobs. Penny Mordaunt also stays as leader of the Commons, though she's unlikely to be delighted about that fact. I think she was hoping for a promotion. There are also some big hitters returning to government. Michael Gove is returning to the last job he had under Boris Johnson. That was as Secretary of State for Housing and Leveling Up. Dominic Raab is back at Justice and as Deputy Prime Minister. And most eyebrow-raising of all, six days after being sacked for a security breach, Suella Braverman is back as Home Secretary. Oh, and I want your thoughts on the reshuffle. I mean, the return of Braverman has been the one which has invited or provoked the most comment. What is Rishi Sunak thinking? Well, it's very clear because what Suella Braverman did when she, of course, resigned is she basically, there was this big fallout with Liz Truss on the basis that they deviated from the, the Tories' basically commitment to cut down the number of migrants and refugees coming into the country. And what we'll see is that will escalate anti-migrant and anti-refugee uh, policy as well. In fact, just while I'm typing, I'm just looking up something else, which is also disturbing, which I'll come on to. I mean, she's almost, a, you know, a cliched version of Pretty Patel, you know, talking about tofu eating, guardian, you know, a lot of her stuff will just be designed to wind up and cause outrage amongst progressive people because they think that mobilizes their base by doing that. I wait, that's what culture was intending to do, of course. On trans stuff, on, on trans issues, uh, she made it clear after her meeting with Rishi Sunak that one of the uh, criteria she gave for supporting him was support was taking on so-called trans ideology in schools. So I think we can see sort of section 28 style stuff on trans rights. And um, Kemi Badenoch, which is what I was looking up there, Kemi Badenoch in charge of equalities described trans women as men, banned gender neutral toilets at her failed leadership bid launch in a really bizarre way. It was just odd. And, and abstained on same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. So she's now in charge of, under her remit, of course, LGBTQ rights. So I think, as I say, it's very clear what this is a culture war government. It will be more culture war orientated than Boris Johnson's was. Um, you can see that by the appointments. And that comes under its own, under austerity, because there will be so much public anger and resentment over further cuts, not least because actually they can't go, well, it's the last Labour government that did this. They can't do that after 12 years. And people can see, well, actually, even the basis for these cuts is what the Conservatives did under Liz Truss, under whom, of course, many of these now cabinet ministers served under. So pressing the big red culture war button makes sense even more in those circumstances, because it's a very convenient way of deflecting public anger away from the government as they institute terrible cuts, and instead getting people to be angry about migrants, about uh, refugees. Rishi Sunak said he would cap the number of refugees, which is against international law in any case, as well as being horribly inhumane. And of course, trans people, the Bet Noir, uh, which has been whipped up by a combination of increasingly deranged activists who are unfortunately very well connected, the British media and the Conservative right who cottoned onto it uh, not that long ago. Quite a shift because Theresa May originally supported uh, reforming the Gender Recognition Act. So they've, they, the Tories have dramatically jumped on this, actually, I would say, from about a year ago. 
It's not good. That's what we face, though. Austerity fused with relentless culture war. That's what the research tells us. And I mean, it is quite scary, really, isn't it? You've got a, a Home Secretary now who said she literally dreams of deporting people to Rwanda. You've got a Prime Minister who, as you said, sort of in his... I mean, it seemed very desperate at the time in his leadership campaign. He was losing, so he came out with more and more sort of wild reactionary policies to try and win over the Tory base. And they included, as you say, what is clearly illegal under international law, putting a cap on refugee numbers. Now, we have heard, you know, we've often in this country, I don't think they've tended to be met, but the government have put caps on non-refugee-based migration, which, I mean, is, is legal under international law. But the whole point of refugee policy is these are people who are looking for safety. Whether or not you give someone asylum is based on the validity of their claim. It should have nothing to do with what number they were when they arose, when they, when they arrived, sorry, in, in the country. So that would be completely illegal. But then you've got Suella Braverman, who seems to make her, you know, her, her reason to be to sort of say international law, we need to override it, human rights, we need to ignore them. And it could be a super reactionary government on that front. I mean, overall, the strategy to me seems that Rishi Sunak cares about the economy. Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, they're going to be the core of the government. And they see that their real task is to restore faith in the financial markets and to try and get inflation under control and make the economy seem a little bit more stable by the time there is a next general election. And at the same time, they're going to give Suella Braverman and the sort of crazies in the Conservative Party free reign to do whatever they want when it comes to social policy. And to me, that seems to be the means by which Rishi Sunak is going to try and keep the party together. So we've also got to remember, people were saying, if Rishi Sunak becomes prime minister, the big danger will be outriders on the right, you know, Nigel Farage sort of restarting another party from the right. The people on GB News, they really have taken a dislike to, to Rishi Sunak. They're constantly calling him a globalist, um, which is, I think, a, an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Not that, you know, Rishi Sunak is Jewish, but sort of leads into this idea of the, you know, the Great Reset tends to have some quite unsavory ideas surrounding it. And I think putting Suella Braverman in that top job is Rishi Sunak saying, no, 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 I'm, uh, I'm not positioning myself against the rabid right-wingers like the Nigel Farages of this world. These people are very much welcome in my government. And when it comes to migration policy, the kind of thing that Nigel Farage cares about, he will have a friend essentially in cabinet in, in the form of Suella Braverman. Do you think there's any dangers there for Rishi Sunak Cohen, or do you think, you know, morality aside, it's quite a smart move to say, look, we'll take the economy, the nut jobs can have social policy? Well, I mean, also, he'll, there's the overcompensating issue because the fact that the right, the hard right, trying to paint Rishi Sunak as some sort of wet, liberal, so called globalist, problematic language for the reasons you've, you've cited means that actually, you know, that's what he did in the leadership election when, for example, he called for those who denigrate Britain to be uh, referred to under counter-extremism programs. What the hell does that mean? It's the sort of thing you'd expect Victor Orban's Hungary to come up with. I mean, what does it mean talking about the crimes of the British Empire, for example? Will you be referred to a counter-extremism unit if you start talking about the Bengal famine and the three million who died under Winston Churchill? What's he talking about? The fact he went there, I mean, look, I think, you know, when people reveal who they are, believe them the first time, as the quote goes, um, you know, whether or not he believes that or not is irrelevant that's the line he's going to, to abide by. And what Nigel Farage et al are doing quite cleverly is to, to constantly threaten and menace by going, if you do not satiate our hard right urges, then and, and you've got to prove yourself, Rishi, because we don't believe you're one of us, then we will be there waiting to set up a new party, which, given your polling, could devastate you and prevent you from ever, you know, from, from winning an election. It's a very dangerous path. What I would say, though, and I think this is very important, 
I mean, it depends what the media do now, so brace yourselves. You know, it's very interesting how at the moment we actually have record levels of immigration, but anti-migrant sentiment has fallen. It's been falling for many years now. The Financial Times did an interesting study which showed there is no correlation between migrant numbers and anti-migrant sentiment, but there is a correlation between negative media coverage about migrants and anti-migrant sentiment. So those who say, well, the media, no, we're not, they're not political actors. Well, they clearly are, and they clearly have a role in inflaming anti-migrant sentiment. I think most people watching this accept that, but it's still seemingly contested. And I think it'll be interesting to see, though, whether or not a significant chunk of the population now are not as susceptible to anti-migrant bashing as they were even 10 years ago, when it was a massive, massive problem. It's the same with social security bashing. That was very popular to George Osborne. The anti-scrounger rhetoric was you know, really, I'm afraid, very popular amongst large chunks of the population. It isn't anymore because they cut too much of the welfare state. And actually, I think Corbyn's Labour refused to play that game, and that also had a role. So it'll be interesting to see now if they... if the Labour now capitulate to anti-migrant framing, and Keir Starmer said that there wasn't much difference between the major parties on immigration, not great, and the media ratcheted it up. That could be a problem. But it could also be the case that a large chunk of the population now have simply aren't now in up, up for man, anti-migrant bashing. But they need, you know, they're relying on, on mobilising their base. At the moment, a lot of Tories have gone to the don't know column rather than the parties. They're trying to win them back. They're trying to forestall, as I said, a a challenge from from the hard right. But I think it's it's dangerous because, as I've said, Rishi Sunak's going to have to prove himself as he sees it and the people around him because of how he's been painted, even though he's a Tory Brexit. Unlike Liz Truss campaigned for Remain, he campaigned for Brexit, but they've, you know, that he's a backstabber and all the rest of it as he's portrayed. So I think, yeah, it's a, da- it's a dangerous moment because I think this will be culture war on speed. That's why he's appointed those people. Their job is to protect the government from accusations that it's too wet and too liberal, so they'll go overboard. That's what Suella Bravery and Shtick is all about, uh, whilst they're obviously pursuing un- unpopular cuts. And it will be interesting because there is a, you know, there's a tension within government. They want inflation down. Getting inflation down, it would be helpful to have a lot of migrants um, because that adds to the workforce at the same time. And I mean, actually, I, I imagine, you know, I imagine there won't be a clamp down when it comes to migration when it's people coming here to to work because that's very useful for the economy at the moment if you are you know in their position because you want to get inflation down i imagine what we will see is sort of a, a hyper intensification of this targeting of control so we, we want control over our borders and we want to stop illegal immigration so i think it's going to all be about the channel yeah. all be about asylum think, seekers yeah. and they will quietly actually increase migration because they kind of need to for the sake of the economy that's exactly it. They'll do these symbolic, really grim things like Rwanda, where actually probably or maybe no one will actually end up being deported. What that does, that's not to say, well, we should just stop talking about then if these are just symbolic, nasty measures to make people like us angry, just ignore it. That actually, obviously, it has an impact because it, it helps demonize migrants and refugees. And that has an impact um, in terms of what happens in communities across the country. I mean, it inflames, it, it legitimizes racists who listen, well, not even dog whistles anymore, are they? And they will act on them. So I think that's why it's important. But I don't, look, we've seen now 12 years of Conservative government saying they're going to bring down immigration. The whole Brexit, obviously, referendum was supposedly in large part about, you know, ending so-called open borders. But actually, immigration is higher than it's ever been because it's actually just not possible based on the economic model we have unless they want economic collapse to achieve what they're trying to do. I mean, it's always this, it's this clash, isn't it, between the Tories being the party of capital, but also being a party that needs to win enough of the vote to form a government. And the way they tend to do that is carrot, i.e. vote for the Tories and there's room for you at the top. 
we'll get, we'll make you rich. We'll make you property owners. But it's also, we're going to go for the other. We're going to go for them and we're going to, we, you know, we're, they're the ones who are responsible for all the problems you face. So it's that clash between what capital needs actually does need immigration and what the kind of bigotry that's always need to tap into to win enough votes. And that is just be really nasty about foreigners. Let's move on. This morning, Liz Truss gave her leaving address to the nation after serving the shortest ever term in the job. It has been a huge honour to be Prime Minister of this great country, in particular to lead the nation in mourning the death of Her Late Majesty the Queen after 70 years of service and welcoming the accession of His Majesty King Charles III. In just a short period, this government has acted urgently and decisively on the side of hard-working families and businesses. We reversed the national insurance increase. We helped millions of households with their energy bills and helped thousands of businesses avoid bankruptcy. We are taking back our energy independence, so we are never again beholden to global market fluctuations or malign foreign powers. From my time as Prime Minister, I am more convinced than ever that we need to be bold and confront the challenges that we face. As the Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, it's not because things are difficult that we do not dare, it's because we do not dare that they are difficult. We simply cannot afford to be a low growth country where the government takes up an increasing share of our national wealth and where there are huge divides between different parts of our country. We need to take advantage of our Brexit freedoms to do things differently. This means delivering more freedom for our own citizens and restoring power to democratic institutions. It means lower taxes so people can keep more of the money that they earn. And it means delivering growth that will lead to more job security, higher wages and greater opportunities for our children and grandchildren. Democracies must be able to deliver for their own people. We must be able to outcompete autocratic regimes where power lies in the hands of a few. And now more than ever, we must support Ukraine in their brave fight against Putin's aggression. Ukraine must prevail. And we must continue to strengthen our nation's defences. That's what I have been striving to achieve. And I wish Rishi Sunak every success for the good of our country. I want to thank Hugh, Francis Liberty, my family and friends, and all the team at Number 10 for their love, friendship, and support. I also want to thank my protection team. I look forward to spending more time in my constituency and continuing to serve Southwest Norfolk from the backbenches. Our country continues to battle through a storm. But I believe in Britain. I believe in the British people. And I know that brighter days lie ahead. Thank you.
brighter days do lie ahead, Liz. It's no thanks to you. Let's recap the key points there. So apparently the highlight of her 44-day premiership was the Queen dying. She quoted Roman philosopher Seneca. Now, like Liz Truss, I'm not particularly familiar with the Roman philosopher Seneca, but that's why I wouldn't have mentioned him in a high-profile speech. Truss then defended her tax-cutting policies that crashed the economy and suggested we can only be a high-growth economy if we have low taxes. We can assume Liz Truss has never heard of France, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, or Sweden. Of course, the list goes on. Owen, your final thoughts on Liz Truss on the day she is confined to the deepest depths of the dustbin of history. Well, say what you like about Liz Truss, and I have, and so have you. Obviously, catastrophic for the economy and for the lives of millions of people, but a great content generator. And for that, of course, she will be sorely, sorely missed. Provided excellent content, which will be with us for, for all eternity. So let's not think that her legacy is all in vain. It wasn't giving apologetic, was it? It was just... It was just, wahaha, my ideology is correct, and I will be vindicated by history, even as she crashed the economy and forced millions of people to pay more in mortgages, mortgage payments, and also rent payments, because, of course, that will be passed on to private renters, which is often forgotten. Just obviously a terrible, terrible disaster for an already crisis-ridden country. Yeah, and it's just the idea that these, you know, the the right-wing lunatic ideas of right-wing think tanks will prevail and, and, you know, just because they've been defeated now, that doesn't mean their glorious time won't one day come. I mean, obviously, what this, what's interesting about Liz Truss is she had this narrative of, which is correct, that we've had decades of economic stagnation, which is true. But I wouldn't, when does she start in the decades from the 80s? That's what decades ago would, I think, most people understand. Well, that was Thatcherism. I mean, what, what has happened, if she actually would kind of look at what's actually happened in Britain, what happened is in the 80s, Britain had the same average economic growth as the 1970s when there was a massive oil shock and resulting economic crisis. It was just less equitably distributed. In the 90s, there was less average economic growth. There was even less economic growth in the 2000s and about the same in the 2010s. I mean, we can see what's happening in the economy now. The three biggest recessions in post-war period, of course, have been since Thatcherism, 80s, 90s, financial crash, I won't include COVID. So the best period for economic growth in Britain was the 1960s. That's when we had the best post-war average economic growth. You can't say that's down to post-war reconstruction. Britain had recovered from the war years before that. That's when we had high taxes on the rich, high corporation tax, state intervention in the economy, nationalisation, strong trade unions. So actually, if she was going to be honest, her ideology is the problem. In the United States, it's produced stagnating living standards. Here, it's produced um, stagnating living standards. Thatcherism is the problem. Neoliberalism is the problem when obviously, as you've noted, countries like Sweden, despite themselves having encroaching neoliberalism, more social democratic settlements have produced higher living standards. So everything she, she, she promoted was a lie. She won't be vindicated by history. She will just be regarded as another damned right wing Tory prime minister who caused incredible hardship for millions of people, which ultimately she will never suffer from because whatever happens to her, she will die as an affluent compared to the rest of the population comfortably off person who who won't ever have to suffer the terrible economic consequences that she has inflicted on people whose names she will never know, whose lives will never touch hers, people who will suffer as a consequence of her terrible, disastrous uh, policies. She regards nothing but contempt, anger and fury and that smirk on her face as she refused to apologise for what she has done to people, which has robbed them of their money in search of cutting taxes on those who were already thriving thriving and booming, who were always comfortable off whatever crisis hits the country, the financial crash, COVID, whatever, always immune, 
always protected. She tried to give them more dosh and in the process made the lives of already struggling people that little bit more miserable and insecure. Onto the scrap heap of history she goes. She deserves nothing, as I said, but contempt. Not the, oh, poor old Liz Truss, well, let's spare a moment for her. Absolute nonsense. What a disgrace. That's a very uh, apt way to end the show. A fantastic summary of Liz Truss's brief reign. Aaron Jones, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Been on Michael, as ever. An honour to have you on. And thank you so much for watching tonight. We'll, of course, be back tomorrow for our usual Wednesday night show at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.